Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Andrew Schroeder from Direct Relief and Crisis Ready, and I'm going to be hosting this interview today with Laura McGorman from the Data for Good program at Meta. Also on the line, we'll have Ewan Oglethorpe from Data Friendly Spaces and Brent Phillips. Laura, can you introduce yourself for our members and tell us about the Data for Good program at Meta? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Laura McGorman. I'm the director of the Data for Good at Meta program. It's a team that's been in existence for about five years, and the goal of our team is to produce privacy-preserving data sets and tools that help humanitarians like those who are listening today perform their work with a little bit more insight into real-time changes on the ground. And Ewan, before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself too? Certainly. Thanks for having me today. Uh, my name is Ewan Oglethorpe. I'm the Executive Director of Data Friendly Space. We are a US-based nonprofit that provides IT and data services to the humanitarian community with an overall vision and goal of making sure that data is used as efficiently possible to promote efficient humanitarian response. Thanks, Ewan. Since you come from an organization that's working with data, that's working with humanitarian activity, what do you most want to know about the Data for Good program at Meta? Absolutely. I think that it's a really exciting program. I think there's, in the humanitarian community, there's a lot of room for uh, private sector partnerships. And I think that given the, the global reach of Facebook, I think it's a really interesting data program. Uh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but some questions that come to mind, um, first from the technical side, I think that for myself and for other organizations, knowing how to access the data, of course, and how often it's updated would be a first part. Next on the technical side, wondering about what kind of data is available, if it's qualitative or quantitative. I think that there's a lot of information made available to the humanitarian sector that's quantitative. But often qualitative data can contain a lot of very useful and interesting information, especially in rapidly evolving crisis, such as uh, the Ukraine conflict right now. And a couple more aside from um, the technical aspect. And of course, you mentioned privacy, Laura, but my mind, of course, goes to ethical concerns, making sure that information is properly anonymized and non-traceable back to the populations it comes from, especially as this data comes from such vulnerable groups. And then lastly, if there's any word on how coordination occurs with humanitarian actors to make sure that priorities are in place, I would say those are the main ones. Cool. Well, that's a wonderful list to start with. Perhaps what I'll do is take those one by one, and then I can pause at the end. And if you want to ask any follow-up questions, because I could probably go on for, for quite some time taking all those at once. So the where and how of the program. So something that we're very proud of on the Data for Good team, which has been an evolution of how we've structured our program in the last two years, is that the majority of our tools right now are fully publicly available. So we have an organization page on Humanitarian Data Exchange, which many people listening today are probably familiar with. It's a really wonderful data sharing platform run by UN OCHA. And uh, you can basically just look us up. You can type in Facebook or Meta into the search terms in HGX, and you'll see several hundred data sets that are completely open source that have been published by our program in the last couple of years. 
So it's great because people listening today can really just jump in and get access to some of our most important data sets right away without signing any paperwork. And that is really important into how we operate. We always are trying to reduce barriers to entry in terms of accessing our data sets. And we think fully public accompanied with protections like differential privacy is often the best way to go in terms of how we share data. Another way you can access what we call controlled access data sets. So this is more fine grain mobility data, things that are a little bit more sensitive and, and we wouldn't want to release fully publicly. Uh, you can sign a one to two page click through license agreement with us and you can get access to a portal that we manage. So if you want to learn more about the controlled access data sets, you can visit our website, which is dataforgood.facebook.com. And you can basically, in a clicker, to uh, sign our license agreement and get onboarded. And in terms of the volume of partners that we work with in that regard, we're now working with almost 600 different nonprofits, UN agencies, and universities in over 75 countries. So trying to keep barriers to entry <laughs> low in terms of accessing our data for people who need it the most. Thanks, Laura. So let me just pick up on a little bit of that in the sense that one of the things I think is impressive about the Data for Good program at Meta is that you are prolific data publishers. I, in fact, actually, I'm not quite sure most folks out there have uh, a good sense of the scope of data publication that's been going on. Do you want to maybe just give an overview of that scope? Like what, what kinds of products are being published? What's the pipeline and how often are you publishing new data sets? Sure. It's a great question. We have probably upwards of about 35 different data product types within which you will probably have data availability for anywhere from you know a handful of countries to almost the entire world. So hundreds and hundreds of data sets have been published by our team over the last couple of years. What we try to do, and we say this a lot in terms of how we operate, is to operate like good product managers, essentially, in terms of how we develop data sets. So I used to work at software as a service companies. You know, the rule there is, is that you solve a problem once for all your clients and then you push them out, push those products out simultaneously to everybody at scale. And so what we try to do is that a couple times a year, we listen to the chorus of humanitarian agencies that we serve, as well as an increasing audience of governments around the world. And we try to hear what the biggest pressing public policy, humanitarian and research questions are in particular domain areas. So you can imagine starting from 2020 through the present, we've been hearing a lot of research and policy questions surrounding COVID-19 response. In the last six months, we've been trying to, well, really in the last month, work very, very fast to respond to changing needs on the ground and to respond to the conflict in Ukraine. And climate change is also a burgeoning area for us in terms of the need for tools across the world. So I would say we probably released two foundational data sets a year that are net new. But again, those tend to be global in nature and available for hundreds of countries at once. And the way that we do that is very collaborative. So again, in, the, in trying to operate like good product managers, because we now have so many partners around the world in so many countries, we are in a constant state of being on the receiving end of new use cases, of feedback on our existing tools, and really just trying to solve uh, as many problems for as many actors working in humanitarian response and public policy around the world at once. One question, if I can jump in, is how does it work from the personnel side? Does your technical team do like part-time work on this and then the rest of the time on like the core meta services, or do you have full-time resources just for those programs? Yeah, across different disciplines at Meta, we probably have about 40 people working on Data for Good. So I actually sit within our privacy and data policy team and roll into our chief privacy officer, which is by design. 
There's about eight people on my team. We have about five full-time data science, about three full-time demography and survey scientists who are working on things like surveys on the Facebook platform as well as off the Facebook platform. And we're, we also have a number of engineers who handle the tooling through which partners access our data. So we have a product manager and we have software engineers that support the program as well. So it's a pretty diverse cast of characters and we're very humbled and grateful that it's a really interesting brain trust. So people on my team tend to come from a combination of public policy and humanitarian backgrounds. I started my career working at USAID and the World Bank. Other members of my team have worked at places like the American Red Cross and our former Peace Corps volunteers. And then we also just have bread and butter data scientists who know Facebook pipelines and Facebook stacks better than anybody out there. So it's a really diverse group. So you mentioned, Laura, there's a portal where the principal metadata for good data sets are hosted. How does data access work on that? Is that download? Are you are you accessing software as a service? Are there APIs available? What can people do to get refreshed data into their systems from Meta? Sure. So again, there's a variety of ways in which people can access our data sets. In addition to the HDX instance, we also house our most one of our most popular maps for good data sets, which is called the high resolution settlement layer, or otherwise known as high resolution population density maps. We host that on Amazon Web Services, which has API-like functionality so that people can grab the most recent population uh, density estimates. And if they want to include them in an application, you can do that. We also have several partner-built APIs because we, for the last two years, have been involved in something called the COVID-19 Trends and Impact Survey, which is a massive survey that's been running in over 200 countries and territories with Carnegie Mellon and University of Maryland. So the data sets for those are available through API run by both of those universities. And then in our controlled access partner portal, it's mostly just download functionality. But again, we're trying to make our data as available as it can be with as few barriers to entry, keeping certain things like access control and sort of type permissions requirements in place as well. Can I jump in with a question? Sure. I'm wondering, Laura, there's obviously a lot of other public initiatives that provide global data and country level data from the humanitarian community in particular for like population density how do you how do you guys go about coordinating with other humanitarian groups to, to make sure that you're complementing as opposed to duplicating yeah i mean i think that when it comes to solving research questions around the world and andrew and i talk about this all the time it's a little bit of a you know everything is complementary and you throw as many data sets at a problem and figure out which one uh, works the best so for example, you know, WorldPOP produces a gridded population estimate of the world. We work super closely with their team at University of Southampton. We coordinate very tightly with them. There's an effort called PopGrid that uh, is coordinating sort of all the teams that are spending time on gridded population estimates. In the early days of COVID, Google produced something called Google Community Mobility Reports. Apple also produced mobility reports. We produced something called Movement Range. Turns out that they were measuring different things and most of our partners who were really knee deep in mobility data ended up using them together. So Google had measures on changes in visits at points of interest. We had overall changes in mobility sort of at a administrative boundary level. And those answer different questions. One is, you know, are people out and about and staying home? If you want to know the answer to that question, you would want to use Facebook data. If you wanted to understand are there fewer people at grocery stores and churches, you might want to use the Google data set. But, you know, paired together, you get a more complete picture of the world. So generally speaking, we try our best to coordinate. And then when we're lucky, we find that our data sets are typically complementary to other ones that exist in, in the marketplace. 
coordination isn't always super easy between organizations. So I can definitely appreciate the amount of effort that must go into making sure that you're, you're working nicely with everyone else. I think it's it's a little bit of both, right? Like coming from a development background and working at USAID, this was always one of our hardest things to do on the ground as well. So I think it's just finding that balance of, you know, really focusing on implementation and, and trying not to get bogged down and, and just talking to people and coordinating and meeting all the time. But having enough visibility into your partner's pipelines and, and the sort of community at large that to your point, you and you're not, you know, duplicating and having two agencies or data providers create the exact same thing to solve the exact same problem. To your point earlier about work with the research community, I mean, one of the things that's also been impressive since the start of the pandemic is just the sheer volume of research papers that are published on a monthly basis using various data sets that are produced through Facebook. I think it's a couple thousand a year at this point. You know, how is the team learning from all that research? So that's that's a, the, this in many ways, an invaluable resource, right? You're getting the the global community of, of researchers to do a wide array of use cases with it. Are are you guys reading all of that? How do you how do you ingest the the kind of lessons from that? We are trying. Uh, yeah, we have a joke uh, on the team that you know it's like two to three nature publications a day, which is incredible that our partners are that prolific in the way that they write as well. I think the major way in which that we try to learn is that very often data sets that were created for one purpose end up being used for something completely different. And that helps us learn how we should build into the future. So, for example, movement range maps, which, again, was one of our foundational COVID-19 response data sets in terms of showing changes in mobility at an administrative level. We were thinking, OK, the major use case here is to see if people are adhering to stay at home or lockdown measures. But what we found is that CSIS in Indonesia created a mobility index that they used to predict GDP in near real time using our movement range data set. So it had strong economic applications. There's also a really interesting paper out of a German research institute that used our movement range data set to measure large scale changes in cycling infrastructure during the pandemic. So I think one of the major ways in which we try to stay on top of the research products is to understand novel ways in which data sets that maybe were released for one purpose could be used in other ways and then what that means about how we have to refine our roadmap in the future. Okay, so then I, I have to then ask you about not just from the research community, but then from the humanitarian or development or environmental communities, how are you learning about their impact with the kind of work that you guys are producing? Well, we are very inquisitive. <laughs> so for partners that we have touch points with, and again, this is like the blessing and the curse of having so much of our data be public is that we have limited visibility into people who are using our data when they're downloaded from surfaces like HDX or AWS. But for people who are nice enough to reach out to us, to email us, we tend to uh, follow up at least once a quarter and find out who has done something interesting with our data sets. So we do a quarterly newsletter that has, you know, about 3,000 subscribers at this point. And we're always asking people, you know, if you have an impact story, if you have a case study you want to write up, please contact us. And that does tend to be a pretty good way of getting reporting. Granted, it's, it's going to be a non-random sample, so we're never going to have perfect visibility. I think when you move to a public first model that, you know, what you give up is sort of 100% visibility in terms of impact. But I think what you gain is that um, you're just getting data to many, many more people who need it. And I think that's a trade-off we've always been quite comfortable to make. So, Laura, how could people go about accessing the quarterly newsletter? 
Yeah, you can just email us at dataforgood at fb.com and anyone from the humanitarian community is welcome to subscribe. Okay, so how do you then define the impact of data sets that are being produced here? There's, I think, a, a long-running conversation in the humanitarian community just in general about impact, which is hard to measure for all kinds of other things besides data. But you have a kind of unique vantage, I think, on this from across so many different use cases. You know, Where do you see impact and how do you know it when you see it? Certainly. I mean, I think as a development economist by training, I think this is a really hard question to answer because you can certainly track as many sort of development banks do the input data. So we can track things like how many data sets did we ship? And then we can also track things like outputs. How many partners do we have? How many downloads have we had? And just looking at those sorts of things, I think we can learn a lot about the evolution of our program. Again, you know, having started about five years ago with six partners, now having nearly 600, we know that the volume of people we're working with is an indication that there's demand for our data sets and we're working with a lot more people. Um, access of our public data over the last year was over 55 million times across HDX, AWS, and partner APIs. That number has gone up dramatically. So we know in terms of usage, there are certain output metrics we can track that are pretty easy to get at. If you want to talk impact, I think it becomes much harder, but we do do our best. And it's honestly through case studies that we think show real strong evidence of incremental impact of a Facebook data set, impact on the ground to communities for a large number of people, and sort of evidence that those two things worked in, in tandem with each other. So we're not obviously able to do randomized control trials saying, you know, here's 50 natural disasters where people used our data and 50 natural disasters where people didn't, even that would be riddled with confounding variables. But what we can say is, you know, if we listen to our partners and we hear their stories and we say that this data set made a huge impact in terms of the way that COVID-19 stay-at-home policies were designed in places like Mexico or Chile, and here's how we think your data made a difference, we tend to count that as the best kind of impact that we're looking for. Because if it's meaningful to our partners and those are the people doing the work, then it's meaningful for us because at the end of the day, that's the community we're trying to serve. When you see, like, something identified by... USAID as an impactful program, like what's an example? And then like, I think there's many examples of impactful work on, you know, Meta's data products. I think it's sometimes hard for people to digest all of that. So like, it, what are the kind of key examples of where you're like, oh, that actually changed something for the better? Sure. I mean, I think the development community actually does set a very high bar for how you measure impact. So I used to work on a program called the President's Malaria Initiative. The way we would measure impact is look at, you know, over a five-year time horizon and then try very scientifically with impact evaluations to measure if the presence of things like bed nets or insecticide-treated spray actually lowered under five mortality in the country. And you would do that in a very robust way. We are not trying to do that in the Data for Good at Meta program simply because I think it's scientifically impossible to do so for some of the constraints that I described. But I do think, again, we care a great deal about when partners say that the impact of our data sets was net new, particularly when you can more accurately target populations in need or where you can provide services to a larger number of people. So I'll provide a couple examples of what I'm talking about. In the last couple of years, we've been working a lot on a data set called the Relative Wealth Index, which is basically a set of AI-powered poverty maps 
this is something we've collaborated with UC Berkeley on. And what we do is we have a bunch of data sets from around the world, including things like satellite imagery, topographic maps, population density maps, as well as de-identified connectivity data from Facebook. We throw that into a big machine learning algorithm, which is trained on actually USAID demographic and health survey data sets, which are sort of the gold standard data set for measuring a number of health indicators as well as they do sort of a proxy means test for village level wealth and household level wealth. And what we've been able to do is create these really detailed maps, even where DHS data does not exist, for where poor, relatively poor communities live in most of the low and middle income countries around the world. And when you're able to create a more high resolution view into where poor populations live, you can do much better targeting for things like social protection programs. And so there's been some papers written by UC Berkeley, as well as Give Directly, with whom we worked in Togo to expand the social protection program there, that you were able to reach thousands of more people with social protection services and with financial assistance during COVID-19 using this big data approach. So I think that's an example of the kind of impact that we're really proud of. Another one that I like to cite is where World Vision has used our high resolution population density maps as the population base layer for providing more water and sanitation treatment programs over the next five years in places like Rwanda and Zambia. So what can be so powerful about using, again, satellite imagery, rich and AI uh, sort of rich population data sets is that you can do much more fine grain estimates on where people are with or without water. Because if you're using a census data set on its own, you might say, okay, you know, there's 10,000 people living in this village. There's like three water points. But what you really need to know is typically there's a national standard for how long somebody should have to walk to get water. And it's like, you know, a 30 minute walk or a couple hundred kilometers. And so using a gridded population estimate like the one that we produce, you can actually draw catchment areas around specific water points. And then you can say very detailed in a very detailed way, okay, this part of this village doesn't have access to water, whereas this section of this village does, and you can be much more refined in your approach. And so they've used our population density estimates as the backbone for a WASH program that's going to reach 50 million people with interventions over the next five years. So these are the kinds of things where we think, you know, we have done a good job providing insights that actually are opening up services and more efficient sort of humanitarian response to either new populations or have targeted the existing programs more effectively. I'm sure you've thought of um, this question before, Laura, but how do you guys deal with bias in your data sets in particular with regards to demographic groups that are more likely to gravitate towards using social media services like Facebook or other meta products? Yeah, this is an interesting and very evolving area of research for us. So similar to the work that can be done in survey weights. So for people who are survey nerds, you know, you take a sample of the population when you're trying to get an understanding of how many people in the U.S. are going to vote. Little do people know and why polling is so fraught with errors that the people who respond to things like phone surveys tend to be disproportionately old or disproportionately unemployed. And so then you conduct a bunch of things called post-survey stratification weights to say, okay, what we know about the sample doesn't actually reflect the population. So we're going to do a bunch of corrections after we collect the poll to try to make it reflective of the nation as a whole. And so we're, we've been doing that actually and starting to roll that same methodology out to a bunch of our maps for good data sets over the last year. And it's really complicated because what a lot of people assume, and this is going to make the problem sound even harder than uh, maybe was once anticipated, but it, it is actually very hard, is that people think, oh, 
well, it's it's the Facebook population that you're building all of these data sets from. But that's not always the case because for many of our maps for good data sets, we're actually taking a sample of a sample of a sample. You know, you have everybody who's on Facebook, but if you're trying to look at something like location information, that's something that only some subset of Facebook users who are using Facebook on their mobile phones opt in to share. <laughs> and so you're having to look at the whole population and then the people who use Facebook at all and then the people who have Facebook on their mobile phones and then the people who've consented in to share location information. And pretty quickly, you're at you know a very small sample. Now, the question is, is that sample representative of the population? That's the million dollar question. What we find when we compare that sort of location services sample as an example, to the population as a whole is that there's really actually high goodness of fit in most places in the world when compared to gold standard population data sets. So places like Europe, US, even most parts in APAC and LATAM, the sort of representativeness of that sample is still quite good given the volume of people who are using. Where you see a lot of bias is places you might expect, low connectivity environments like South Sudan and DRC. And regardless of even if there's a bit of bias, what we've been trying to do is take the known bias in the Facebook data and correct for it in as many maps for good data sets as we can over time. So this is something we've done with what's called displacement data sets in the last year. And we're looking at rolling out that methodology to more and more of our tools over time. That's really interesting. Do you know if Twitter, TikTok, or any other social media providers also have a data for good service? Sure. I mean, I, I know that programs produce data for good data sets. So there's a partnership that we work with that's run by the World Bank called the Development Data Partnership. And for example, I know that Google participates in that as well. LinkedIn participates in that. I'm not aware of a program that has been around as long as ours that maybe has quite so many people working on it full time in the tech sector. But I do believe that there are similar efforts in our partner companies across across the world. To shift gears just a little bit, staying in the same genre though, you know, one of the most challenging parts of this data sharing for social good, analysis sharing for social good world is around uh, public sector decision-making. So, you know, sharing either data or insight with governments that are, I think, increasingly at risk of not having appropriate capacity to be able to handle data, or there might be concerns about what governments do with data if they get it. How do you guys navigate that in terms of, you know, how to work with government, how to make sure that, you know, you're providing insight, but, you know, there's boundaries around that that are meaningful to the kinds of situations that you're finding yourselves in? Sure. I mean, I think, Andrew, I would also ask you the same question since we often jointly do this. <laughs> We've worked a lot with Crisis Ready over the past two years on, on sort of joint go-to-market for things like COVID-19 response and how to work with the public sector. I mean, the very short answer that I have is that we try to be demand-driven. And I would say that something that we don't spend a ton of time on on my team, but I think that's just you know out of a desire to focus our efforts where we can have the most impact is what we call like capacity building. So there are plenty of really data savvy government agencies around the world, really interesting and fascinating teams working within ministries of health, ministries of economy, ministries of finance. I mean, as much as there are capacity issues in many places in the world, there's also a ton of really impressive people working in governments around the world. And so typically what we do is we just find, you know, the fellow quant jocks where they are in the public sector and we make friends with them and then try to answer their questions. 
And every so often we will partner with groups around the world on things like data literacy trainings and try to upskill, you know, maybe lower capacity environments. But I'd say the lion's share of our time is spent working with governments that have the sort of will and desire to make use of our data and, and trying to meet that need. You know, I think this is a question that a lot of people have when they think about like the future of Facebook, now Meta. And then you think about the future of data for good programs that I think you've, you know, articulated quite well in terms of the leadership that's been exhibited around problem solving uh, using really large data sets. How does, the, well, first of all, what is the metaverse? Uh, second of all, like, how does that potentially the positioning change what you mean in terms of problem solving, technology applied to social good, or the kinds of data that actually might be available? It's a does it change anything or, or or is that, you know, something that you're actively kind of thinking through where that repositioning occurs? Sure. I mean, I think one immediate application of some of the lessons learned of our data for good program is that it exists now and how it might influence how we operate in the metaverse is through the use of privacy enhancing technologies. So again, because we roll into the privacy and data policy team, members of my team are sort of part of the core group of people developing um, meta privacy enhancing technologies strategy. And so there are tools like federated analytics, which sort of to break that down means that we're trying really hard not to collect actual raw data from cell phones, but we're actually trying to send basically a menu or an algorithm to a device itself and say, we don't, don't give us all your data, just do these calculations and send us back a result. And the result is obviously several steps abstracted from actual user data. As we try to apply those models to our maps for good data sets using platform Facebook data, we are also thinking about how you could essentially do leapfrog development in the metaverse such that you start, you know, you hit the ground running in terms of applying privacy enhancing technologies from how you would gather data in a place like the metaverse. So just start with something like federated analytics as opposed to having to build it several years after you've been collecting data in, you know, traditional ways. And I think that because our team is so committed to creating really robust data sets from a privacy protective perspective, that's one place where we may, you know, lean very heavily on, on people who are working to build the metaverse and collaboratively sort of sharing methodologies there. I think, you know, from a humility perspective, it's probably going to be a really long time, to be honest, before we're making data products, at least for the humanitarian community from metaverse data, simply because of the issues of representativeness that we've already talked about. So if we think about bias in a data set that's ga gathered from smartphone users, I can imagine the bias that would exist in data sets gathered from headset users is going to be really, really challenging in the first few years of the metaverse. And that's something that I think as practitioners, we're, we're incredibly mindful of. But as we move more and more to this AR, VR centered focus of the company, I think we're going to just continue to listen to our humanitarian partners around the world. And if there's helpful data sets or interesting applications, I mean, I think in financial services, there's sort of a lot of room to grow there. So we're always going to be listening to our partners around the world to hear what would be most useful. Can I jump in with a question? Sure. Uh, last time, or when I was interviewed on this podcast, I was asked about how the metaverse could be used like for humanitarian social good. One example that I thought of was you could use it kind of for awareness building in terms of being able to show people that have never been in a humanitarian crisis, kind of like what it's like on the ground and what that's actually, you know, to, to get a better sense of it. Do you guys have any other kind of creative ideas of how it could be used? One that comes to mind for me as well is like, 
uh, humanitarian OpenStreetMap or HOT. You know, it's a service where you can, using satellite imagery, map out buildings and roads and, and features of, of land. Is there any similar thing with like VR that you can think of in terms of using the metaverse? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think some of the early applications that people in the nonprofit sector talk about is certainly, you know, in medical communities, being able to train nurses and doctors and, you know, peripheral staff in far lower risk environments when you're working in VR. I think in terms of the actual use of the metaverse for social good, the applications are far and wide. However, being sort of a data out person, I think the extent to which creating global data sets from metaverse collected information, I think that might be slightly more lagging in terms of how easy it is to do. It's amazing all the work going on behind the scenes in terms of uh, natural language processing development at Meta and voice assistance and all that. And it just dawned on me, like your input on the metaverse is so cool and it's so appropriate for people interested in natural language processing. And like, how do you approach question answering and things like that, thinking about the backend and data and all that. And hopefully your team at some point will collaborate with teams at Meta pushing the envelope of you know voice technology. And I think the input that you could bring to them and vice versa is really valuable. The corollary to the program that we run now is uh, a set of tools called Insights for Impact, where we're looking at trends in public posts on the Facebook platform, as well as survey data on topics like vaccine acceptance. So this is actually the type of data for good partnerships that we're approached about very often because, you know, people think Facebook, they think this is where people talk about how they're feeling and post updates to their family and friends. And so mostly what many nonprofits around the world want to do is some measure of social listening. You know, what is the public conversation around the COVID-19 vaccine in Pakistan? What are the drivers of hesitancy? And so our Insights for Impact program does take a look at what are the trends we're seeing in and how different groups are posting on Facebook around a particular topic. And then we try to arm nonprofit counterparts with those insights so that they can create the most effective outreach campaigns as possible. And we fund those actually on Facebook through advertising credits. And so I could certainly see there being a corollary in the metaverse where you're now pulling from a larger swath of data on what is the public conversation around a particular topic and how do we use that to learn so that humanitarian actors around the world can do their work more effectively. I think what's interesting about vaccine acceptance, again, because of the global reach of Facebook, is that we're learning that there are a lot of things that actually do have a lot of external validity. So things like social norms, as much as they differ exactly what the social norm is in a particular country, that sort of overall approach can be very effective in combating issues of vaccine acceptance. In the United States, you might want to focus on the social norm of liberty and personal choice, whereas in places like India, we found that the social norm of sort of national pride can be really effective in galvanizing support for, for vaccination. But one way or the other, we're able to use publicly posted information on Facebook to sort of tailor those campaigns, which I think could be a really interesting sort of way forward in the metaverse as well. I'd like to take the metaverse conversation in a slightly different direction, actually. You know, we talk a lot, actually, in humanitarian data, humanitarian response communities around the right way to present insights from data so that, you know, you get decision makers to pay attention to them and to learn what they need, right? People often don't need, at at the decision level, a, a giant data set. They need the result of that data set that communicates something meaningful to them. And I actually wonder whether there are opportunities within how we think about, you know, augmented 
reality or or whatever kind of like globally distributed localized context where there's place-based information that you're encountering data about population dynamics at a certain location data about disaster impacts at a certain location that can be made much more like locally contextually relevant given the way that we're likely to be encountering information in, you know, a variety of different ways, like whether you're seeing, you know, like what's the mobility rate in your area and and a way to kind of overlay that on a kind of physical reality you know what what are the ways that you can basically make it more relevant like beyond a pdf that you're giving to a uh, decision maker is there a way to kind of embed useful data insights into what they're able to kind of you know deal with on a on a day-to-day local basis i mean everything you're saying is very exciting to me i <laughs> think Having admit more than once on the on this interview that I'm a development economist by training and not a UXR futurist, I will admit that I think that that's kind of what I'm deferring to the many amazing sort of software engineers, designers, UXR researchers at the company. I think that's this is the world of the possible that's being actually researched and, and sort of, I think, noodled on right now. But it sounds really cool. And I tend to agree with you, the more ways that we can help decision makers interact with data sets in a way that's not static, that we can help make this, you know, what if analyses potentially more real time for people, I think that could be very cool. And it certainly makes me excited about the the future of where technology is headed. So Andrew, this is Brent again. I know that you and Meta are collaborating around Ukraine and the flight of refugees and IDPs. Do you want to talk a little bit about the data that you're using and what you're generating with the data and a little bit about your partnership? Sure. So I think the important thing about the data that Meta is producing for the Ukraine response, and, and we could go into a number of different directions, but we've been looking principally at mobility of people who have left Ukraine. So we're not actually looking at internally displaced people, is that, you know, the questions that have come up from response agencies have been about where you're likely to see the greatest pressures on social services, on hospitals, healthcare resources, access to, you know, food, et cetera, in different parts of principally Eastern Europe, Poland, you know, being the largest area, Moldova being the most per capita. And the mobility data from Meta allows for high level guidance, I think, on where you're seeing population flows change in near real time. You know, we're looking at that from a, from a, you know, when I say high level, like at administrative units across a country and where you're seeing changes in density and changes in movement, like from and to at the kind of population level. And that to me answers among, along with other things, you know, how should Polish NGOs that are concerned about making sure that people have enough food to eat be thinking about where you should concentrate uh, your focus? A direct relief distributes medical aid. We've been looking at connecting up with a lot of different groups throughout the refugee receiving countries to make sure that people have access to medical care and supplies, et cetera. It, it helps us in terms of a guidance, like where are you able to, to kind of focus efforts? I, I think that, you know, 
one of the important insights that maybe goes like not commented on frequently enough is that because Meta actually has had the ability to systematize the data for good program to a degree that's really easily replicated in other com companies even, we had access to relevant data sources right away. Like, so when the invasion happened on February 24th, we could begin calculating percentage change in density and, and mobility just immediately. And that made that made it so that we could work in tandem with the changes in the in the situation, right? So as it's a very dynamic situation, you know, we, we wanted to be able to to monitor that as it happened. Um, as opposed to negotiating with a telecom regulator in country X, which is able to provide cell phone records, but which takes us weeks, if not months, to access a data from that. That it might be more granular, but it the process is much more arduous to get access to that kind of data. So that to me has been one of the really kind of central issues is that we have a, an appropriate scale, an appropriate process, and, a, and an appropriate set of questions that can be answered with that. It's not the end of the story, but I do think that, that that's been really, really successful thus far. And we've been concerned mainly about sharing that out with relevant agencies so that, you know, the World Bank, OCHA, UNICEF, IFRC, you name it, are, all need different views of that. We'd like that to get more into the hands of local responders as well, so that you know Polish, Romanian, other NGOs can benefit from those insights. And those, those networks are in formation now. Laura, any thoughts on that? And maybe putting some of this data behind the API or something on a, maybe on a limited basis. So so yeah, it, it's a really good point, Brent, and that is our current approaches. The majority of data sets that we're publishing for Ukraine right now do fall into that controlled access category just because this is the type of situation where we're sort of openly available data I don't think would be prudent uh, for obvious reasons. But the major ways in which we're trying to help groups like Andrews uh, and sort of the Crisis Ready Network, as well as Direct Relief, other groups that we're working really closely with this response on are UNHCR, groups out of the European Commission, IOM, IFRC, and others, is really predict refugee flows as well as better understand exactly where people are. And I think what is so helpful about real-time mobility data in that regard is that you can see things that aren't captured by official statistics. So... For example, um, you might have a really good understanding of the volume of people who've entered Poland since the onset of the conflict. But if you're able to track sort of cohorts of people displaced by the conflict, what you might see is that a lot of people have also since left Poland and may also be returning to Ukraine or heading to places like Germany and Czechoslovakia. And so better understanding sort of these aggregated trends in population flows as they evolve over time not only how many refugees are displaced in total, but not just where they're starting, but where they're ending up. And what that means for certain cities or towns, as Andrew said, needing uh, a particular type of resources and support, I think is really key. Understanding the demographics of displacement is really important. So as most people know, the disproportionate amount of people or type of people displaced by this conflict are women. But, you know, better understanding the rates at which elderly populations are or are not leaving the country. We know from natural disaster response that actually it's much harder for elderly populations to follow evacuation protocols. I think we're seeing a bit of that in Ukraine as well. So really just trying to under, underscore and, and sort of make more clear to humanitarian responders where people are headed, where they're ending up, who they are and what they need is, is the goal of the data sets that we're producing. You can do that through mobility data for neighboring countries. And you can also do that through tools like our social connectedness index, which is an understanding of friendship ties around the world, where you can actually try to predict refugee flows based on uh, where people have existing family and friends. 
So we're trying to use all the tools in our toolbox right now to help nonprofits and governments who are responding to this conflict while keeping sort of data protection and and sort of the vulnerability of, of these populations at hand top of mind as well. So data friendly space, we're um, in you in response to the Ukraine conflict, we're working on an OSHA funded project now for uh, situation analysis. So we put out bi-weekly reports and special thematic reports that detail kind of a, a broad array of humanitarian topics about the conflict. And the way we do this is by going through largely public sources like local media, international media, agency and NGO reports. And it, it's it's quite a lot of manual review of qualitative data. But then this comes back to a question I asked at the start, which was, are there any plans or maybe perhaps I'm missing something for information other than location data to be made available in terms of things that are maybe like shared publicly amongst Facebook groups or something. And in particular for us and the work that we do, if that's somehow like synthesized into, you know, taxonomies that are in line with common humanitarian analytical frameworks. I don't know if that's something that you guys have considered. Yeah. I know oh, it's a pretty sure. specific question. Yeah. So I think right now I'm mentioning mobility and real-time population changes is what's most heavily used by partners who are responding. Those are kind of the burning questions. Where are people leaving from? Where are they going to? Where are they ending up? The data on social connections is, is public for most countries in the world and can be used. It's called the Social Connectedness Index. You can look it up on our HDX organization page, but that has been used to predict refugee flows as well as for a whole host of other applications. Again, we, we published something called the Relative Wealth Index, which can show sort of the rate at which people living in Ukraine were sort of poor relative to other populations before the onset of the crisis. We also have high resolution population density maps, as I have mentioned, which I know this sounds like less sexy than other real time data, but it's still important now more than ever to have accurate views of where people are or are not living in uh, neighboring countries so that you can accurately target resources based on like an uh, accurate denominator. So those are some of the data sets that we're making available that I think are broadly applicable to Ukraine right now. And obviously, we're going to be on the receiving end of a lot of feedback over the next couple of months about what would be useful to release in the future. So in, in addition to all of the data that you mentioned, the platform itself and Facebook is potentially really useful for things like matching people with resources. Community help, I think, has been in development for a long time and used for a long time. How is that help? What is community help and, and how is it helping in Ukraine? Sure. So community help, uh, as the name would describe, is a, is a hub for people who've been recently affected by either a natural disaster or a conflict like one that's ongoing in Ukraine to find connections to both organizations as well as individuals in their communities who can be of assistance. We've dramatically expanded this tool given the onset of the crisis in Ukraine so that people who are currently in Ukraine or people who have recently departed have ready access to information on where to seek medical attention, how to stay safe, and how to get connected to groups like UN agencies as well as state-run emergency services. And you can find it on Facebook at facebook.com slash community underscore help underscore Ukraine. And we're also sort of promoting this at the top of both Facebook and Instagram newsfeed for people who are in the country as well as who've recently left so that they can eat, find it easily. But we're trying to make this a tool so that not only, again, organizations can easily access populations who are in need of services, as well as people who are living in nearby countries and want to offer their support to recently arrived people who've been displaced by the conflict. Do you see yourselves collaborating with initiatives like Signpost to answer queries posed by refugees about services and things? 
Sure. So we have a program that actually Director Leaf so Andrew can speak to this, whereby organizations can basically onboard to community help and make sure that they're basically able to integrate with those surfaces and offer direct programs on the community help surfaces. So I, I think we'd welcome that with a range of organizations who are operating locally. All right. So before we close, Laura, there's a question that is asked of all guests here at the end of each interview, which is, would you think of a futuristic AI application that you'd like to see exist and maybe describe it for us? What would that be for you? I'm smiling because I think I'm drawing from personal life. So I'm I'm 30 weeks pregnant and I have a two and a half year old. So the first things that come to mind are things that sort of... <laughs> advanced guidance in terms of scientific decision making. So we were literally just talking about this on a thread of women I know who are also expecting around, do we get second boosters? Do we wait till you're a certain point <laughs> in your pregnancy? So I think anything that we could do to sort of hasten the rollout of um, best practices from medical decision making using AI. So I guess trying to solution this idea would be, you know, tools that aggregate findings across peer-reviewed literature faster than groups like, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics can. I think that would be cool. I'm a huge follower of a woman called Emily Oster that's sort of an economist turned parenting guru, but ways you could automate the kind of sort of literature analysis that she does, I think could be really cool for, for not only parents, but sort of data-driven decision-making in our lives across the board. Laura, it's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. Thanks so much for joining. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close. Thanks, everyone.